Good morning. We can find our seats. If you would turn to Exodus uh, chapter 3, we're going to start reading 13, verse 13. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. And if you would read along with me. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I am humble, humbled as I approach this text this morning, Lord. I think every Christian recognizes, Lord, the importance of this passage as we come to it. The idea that you would reveal your name to us. God, I pray that as we approach this important passage, Lord, as we look at this revelation that you have given Moses, Israel, Egypt, the world, that we are in awe, Lord, of who you are. Be with us, Lord. Help us see your character. Help us understand who you are. Be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. What is scripture? It's an important question that I hope you have asked yourself at some point. In seminary, I spent a lot of time thinking about this question and talking about it. Um, it's truth. It's light. It's God's word. It's God's revelation to us. It's God revealing truths about himself to us. I remember my first date with Sarah. I took her to Olive Garden. You know what we did the whole time we went uh, on this first date? We talked. 45 minutes, we live in Tehachapi, 45-minute drive down to Bakersfield, we talked. An hour wait, Olive Garden on a Friday night. An hour and a half dinner, and then 45-minute drive back to Tehachapi. So over four hours of really getting to know her. I was studying her. I was engaged in what I call Sarahology. The study of Sarah. And she was revealing truths about herself to me during that whole entire time. Our first date really was getting to know each other, and I was getting to know her. And to be honest, I've been studying her ever since and learning more and more about who she is. Listen, the Bible is God revealing truths about himself to us. It's amazing. He didn't have to reveal himself to us, but he did. We are privileged to have this. 
you think about it, when you're first getting to know someone, where do you start usually? What is your name? It's usually the first question you'll ask someone if you don't know them. And that's because names reveal a lot about us. In fact, when I uh, was doing this passage, I've preached on this passage before, there happened to be an article I came across in the Washington Post, and it was talking about how it's kind of rude or taboo now to ask someone their last name on a first date. And so I'm like, why? And as I read this article, I guess because asking gives off the sense that you want to Google search that person. And it comes off as intrusive. Last names are too personal for a first date. Names reveal a lot about us. And there's a level of intimacy with knowing someone's name. Think about that in a conversation. When someone uses your name in the conversation, there's a level of intimacy there. In fact, when I write emails, if I want to get really personal in that email, I'll use that person's name. I'll write that name, and then if I get to a place where I want to say, hey, we know each other, I'll say, Jim, for example, Jim. And then I'll write it to show a level of intimacy that I know you. I have studied Exodus a number of times now. I've taught through it a number of times, and I am convinced that the major theme of Exodus is God revealing the meaning of his name to us. What does it mean that he is Yahweh? So there's two things I want to do this morning as we approach this important text. In Exodus chapter 3, we'll be here for a while. There's two things I want to do. Um, The first one is this. I want to look at our text and kind of do a quick overview. When I say we're going to be here for a while, I mean in the next couple weeks. We're going to be in chapter 3 for a little while. The second thing I want to do is I really want to look at the outline of the whole book of Exodus. And I want to focus on two chapters that are way later on, chapters 33 and 34, because I really believe that the two most important verses of all of Exodus is not found in chapter 3, but actually found in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, and we'll get there in a second, and I'll try to explain why. In fact, I think these two verses are the two of the most important verses in all of Scripture, and probably... I think I could say this confidently, the two most important verses in the Old Testament. And so I'm excited to get to where we're at in Scripture. But let's start by going back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. This is where we left off last week. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Now, this is the Pharaoh that we see in chapters 1 and 2. He dies and he's replaced by a new Pharaoh. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They cried for rescue from slavery. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to the Lord. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw his people, or the people of Israel, and God knew. In this one verse, we see four things that God does. He hears, and he hears the groanings of his people. He, he remembers, he remembers the covenant, the promises he made, the relationship he has with his people. He saw, he saw what was happening to the people of Israel, and he knew. 
He knew what was going on. God knew exactly the pain and trials and suffering that the people of Israel were going through. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. It's kind of a normal day for Moses here. He was looking for greener pastures. This is out in the wilderness, so there's not a lot of grass, and he was looking for somewhere where his sheep, right, the flock as a shepherd, would find food. And he ends up at the mountain of the Lord. This is Mount Sinai. It will become very important later on. Look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Clearly, this was a supernatural event. Bush was burning, it was not consumed, and Moses, as the author, makes this in here, so I don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was something unusual and caught his eye. Verse 3, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. I want to point out, I want you to notice, that God uses Moses' name twice here. Moses, Moses. There's a sense of intimacy here. Just like in that email when I use someone's name and I want to show that I know them, I use their name, and he uses his name twice to say, Moses, I know you. Moses, Moses. God cut out, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Verse 5, then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the Lord of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Again, God knows what's going on. 400 years in Egypt, Israel has been there. And God knows. Verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, um, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Look at verse 8 again. It says this, I have come down to deliver them, that's Israel, out of the hands of the Egyptians. This is exciting, right? Moses, I think at this point, was like, Yes. But then we get to verse 10. Come, I will send you. (laughs) Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
Now, Moses is not excited about this idea. And again, we're going to spend some time on what exactly is going on and what I think why Moses isn't excited. Um, he gives four objections. In fact, he argues with God. And at the very end, God gets frustrated with Moses, it seems like, and says, you're going, Moses. There's four objections. And I just want to look at the first two real quickly. The first one is this. Really, the objection that um, Moses gives is, who am I? Who am I? Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, this is God, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The first objection that Moses gives really is a question that he says, who am I? And again, we'll spend more time on this in the coming weeks. The second objection Moses gives, I believe, is this. Who are you? Look at verse 6 to 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, as I've studied this passage, there's a lot of debate to why Moses would ask this question. Why would Moses say, the people are going to ask me, what is his name? The reason why there's a lot of debate on this is that the name of the Lord, and when you see the capital letters L-O-R-D, which I'm going to explain why that is next week. But when you see capital letters L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, right? the name of the Lord. And the reason why this is a debate, and, and, and people aren't sure why Moses asked this, is because the name of the Lord, Yahweh, is used over 165 times in Genesis. Exodus 3 is not the first place we see the name of the Lord. In fact, it seems like God has already revealed his name throughout all of Genesis, starting from the beginning. Genesis 4.25 says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh. Right from the beginning, people knew God's name, Yahweh. God's name was already revealed, starting in Genesis 4. And again, we see Yahweh over and over and over again in Genesis 165 times. So why would Moses ask for God's name? Now, there's a lot of theories on this, why Moses would ask. But let me just tell you what I think. When Moses asked, or anticipated the question at least, that the Israelites would ask, what is his name? He was asking, really, what does it mean that you are Yahweh? What is the meaning of your name? In other words, who are you? Even if the Israelites at this point forgot God's name, and maybe that's why Moses asks, you know, they anticipate this question. It was revealed in Genesis, but it hasn't been revealed to the fathers of Abraham and then, or the fathers of Israel, and it's been forgotten by the time we get to Moses. Or maybe the name, again, wasn't given to the fathers at all. Names reveal a lot about a person. 
And I really think what Moses was asking was about God's character. Who are you? What type of God are you? What does it mean that you are Yahweh? And God gives Moses three responses, and each response gives a little bit more information. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, most people, if you read the majority of commentaries out there and the people I trust and love, most people interpret this as God stating that he is self-sufficient. That he's without beginning, without end. He just is. I am who I am. Or, some people interpret this as God making some kind of philosophical statement about himself, that he's a God of being. It could be that, and just a side note, I believe God is self-sufficient. But I really think God is simply telling Moses, I'm about to show you who I am. I am who I am. In fact, many Hebrew experts, which I am not, so we're going to have to trust people that know Hebrew a lot better than me on this one. Many Hebrew experts believe a better translation of verse 14 would be, I will be who I will be. In fact, you probably have a footnote in your scriptures that says this could be translated, I will be who I will be. Which I think is a weighty argument because it's the same construction we see in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, which says this, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will be who I will be. First response, verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. The second response is verse 14 again. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Not only will I show you who I am, but tell the people of Israel, I have sent you to them. And then the third response, which I think is the most important response, verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, capital letters, Yahweh, God's proper name, Yahweh, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Yahweh is God's name. And it's related to I am. Or I will be. It's related because they have very similar letters. But God's name is Yahweh. Personally, I think the importance of this is God is saying, I am about to show you who I am. Then God finishes by saying, This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So think about this, the context of what's going on here. Moses is called from the burning bush. God tells Moses to go, right? Go lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses anticipates this question. If Israel asks me, what is is his name? What is your name? Who is this God? Right? We know the stories. We've been, we've been told the stories. We know what he has done in the past, but where has he been the last 400 years? Who is this God? Can we trust him? Moses anticipates his question. What is his name? And God answers Moses. Tell them, I am who I am. Tell the people that I am has sent me to you. 
tell them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. Each response reveals a little bit more. God is saying, I am Yahweh, and I'm about to show you what that means. Therefore, I believe the rest of the book of Exodus from here on is really God showing what it means that he is Yahweh. God is revealing his name. In in chapters 3 through 4, God gives his name Yahweh. In chapters 5 through 40, God reveals what it means. This is what I want to do next. I want to look at chapters 5 through 40 and do a quick overview or outline to kind of get our minds wrapped around the book as a whole. We know, most of us know the story pretty well, and if you don't, uh, Exodus 5 through 12, God shows that Yahweh is both powerful and wrathful. Ten devastating plagues. Each a judgment, each against a false god, each against false worship, each because Pharaoh and Egypt refused to listen to Yahweh. In fact, remember, Pharaoh says in Exodus 5 verse 2, who is Yahweh? Moses comes and he says, who's this God you're talking about? Who's Yahweh? I've never heard this name. That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. Well, God shows who Yahweh is. Ten plagues that show Egypt, Pharaoh, and the world who Yahweh is. By the time we get to chapter 12, Pharaoh knew a little bit more about Yahweh. He knew that he was powerful, that he was holy, that he was just, that he was wrathful, even scary. I mean, God's wrath is scary. The ten plagues, I mean, we watch the cartoons and they're cartoons, but they brought death and destruction. plagues were scary. God's wrath is scary. In fact, Proverbs 1, 7 says this, the fear of the Lord, capital letters, Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Listen, Pharaoh was a fool by not fearing God. But we get to chapter 12, right? Passover We see that Yahweh is also merciful, gracious, and loving to his people. He tells them to kill a lamb, to take the blood of that lamb and spread it on the doorposts, and God's wrath will pass over, that's where we get the name Passover from, pass over the households that have the blood on the doorposts. And after that, Yahweh even saves his people, right? We know the story. Pharaoh lets Israel go, but then changes his mind. Chases after them to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. Israel goes through the the Red Sea. We see God's mercy and grace and salvation and freedom and redemption. Then the Red Sea crashes down on the most powerful army in the world at that point in history. And we see God's wrath and judgment. In Egypt... It's really out of the picture at this point. We're left with only three characters from, from chapters 12 on. That's Israel, Moses, and a holy God. 
whose name is Yahweh. Exodus chapters 20 through 23, God gives Israel Ten Commandments, which really show his character. Ten Commandments come straight from his nature and who he is, revealing what it means that he's Yahweh. It also shows how to live in covenant relationship with a holy God. Exodus chapter 20 through 24, he gives the law. Exodus chapters 25 through 31, God tells Israel how to worship him. In Exodus chapters 20 through 31, God is saying, I am Yahweh, and here's my character. And this is how you live in covenant relationship with me. Think about it this way. We often say that marriage is a covenant relationship. And the vows at a marriage ceremony then are promises to each other as they enter into this covenant relationship. The Ten Commandments... Israel In the Ten Commandments, Israel is vowing to the Lord, we will not worship other gods. We will not, not make any carved images. We will not blaspheme your name. We will keep the Sabbath day holy. We will honor our parents. We will not murder. We will not commit adultery. We will not steal. We will not bear false witnesses. We will not covet. But what happens? You're familiar with the story right after the law is given to Israel, like the very next thing, Israel sins horribly (laughs) and breaks the covenant. Israel is unfaithful, breaks the law, and sins horribly. In chapter 32, Israel makes a golden calf and worships it. Right away, the first two commandments, they break. No other gods before Yahweh, no carved images. Not only that, in Exodus 32, 6, it says this, they rose up early the next morning and offered burnt offerings and, and brought peace offerings, and this is to uh, the golden calf, not Yahweh. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That word play conveys the idea in Hebrew of laughter. It probably means they got drunk and partied. Israel sinned and rebelled against God. They broke the covenant now think about this. Okay? The reason we're going through this, this whole narrative of Exodus. At this point, what did Israel know about Yahweh? What have they seen? Ten devastating plagues. The whole army of Egypt destroyed. They know that Yahweh is holy, just, wrathful, and all-powerful. And they knew they rebelled and have sinned against this holy God. With all that in mind, turn with me to chapter 33, verse 1. I want to slowly walk through chapter 33 and 34 because I do, I'm convinced that they're connected to chapter 3. When we finally get to 33 and 34 years from now, I hope not, (laughs) we'll connect it back to chapter 3. I think the problem with going through books so slowly like I do, I say this is a problem, yet I still go slowly, is that you don't get the whole narrative as a whole. And this is why I want to do an outline. 33. 
3 and 34 is connected to chapter 3. And chapter 34 has the two most important verses, I believe, arguably in all of Scripture, definitely in the Old Testament. The clearest statement that you will find on who Yahweh is. If you want to know who God is, we're about to see. How is God going to respond to Israel's sin? Look at verse 1, chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I showed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. That doesn't sound that bad. Almost not what you would expect. God's still promising the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. He even says, I'll send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, and so on. Sounds like the promise in Exodus 3. But again, look at verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God is saying, you can, you can have the promised land, but I'm not going with you. Why? Well, it gives two reasons. First, you're a stiff-necked people, you're sinners. And if I go with you, I would consume you on the way, because he's holy and just. Now, there's a dilemma here, and this dilemma is seen everywhere in Scripture. All of Scripture. In fact, it's, it's, it's at the core of Scripture. The dilemma is this. God is holy, and we are sinners. That's an issue. Because of his holiness and our sin, there is a separation between us and God. between a holy God and rebellious sinners. And here's the problem of that. We need a relationship with God. We are made to worship God. In fact, we find all sorts of trouble when we worship other things. We were made to worship God. We, we find our joy and satisfaction in his glory in worshiping him. Our deepest joy and needs and satisfaction are in his glory and worshiping him and being in a relationship with him. You see, he made Adam and Eve a man to worship God. Yet we are sinners and there's a separation. This is a dilemma starting in Genesis 3 that goes throughout all of Scripture. And to Israel's credit, they got it. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word they mourned and no one put on his ordinance when they heard this disastrous word they, they mourned without God we are nothing sip down to verse 12 listen to Moses' response to God verse 12 Moses said to the Lord again this is Yahweh see you say to me bring up this people but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know, you're, know you by name. Remember? 
Exodus chapter 3, he called Moses, Moses, Moses. I know you, Moses. I know you by name. Intimacy, because I know your name. Moses, Moses. I know you by name, and, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Let me know your name, God. What does it mean that you are Yahweh? That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. I think Moses here is pleading with God, show me your ways. Show me your character. Who are you? What does it mean that you are Yahweh? I think it's the heart of the question that he was asking in Genesis 3, or Exodus 3 that he was expecting. And I think the heart of this question is that Moses wants to know, how can we have a relationship with you if you are holy and we are sinners? Look at verse 19. And he, this is God, said... I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. Right? All capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Exodus 3, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be again. I will, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. There's that dilemma again. Verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on a rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the the rock and I'll cover you. With my hand until I have passed by, then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now skip to chapter 34, verse 6, because this is about to happen in verse 6. Look what it says in verse 6, chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh. Yahweh. Does that sound familiar? Moses, Moses. I know you, Moses. Intimacy there. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the only time in the whole Old Testament that we see Yahweh's name put this way, where it's just mentioned twice in a row like that. Significance to this. God is proclaiming what it means that he is Yahweh. In fact, again, I've said this a number of times, I think the next two verses are the two most important verses in all of the Old Testament. Maybe the clearest statement we have anywhere on who God is in all of Scripture. God is answering Moses and Israel what it means that he is Yahweh. In fact, I think he's answering what what the question that was proposed all the way in chapter 3. We finally get the answer. Verse 6, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yahweh means I am both a hundred percent merciful and gracious. Verse six, a God of merciful or a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sins, yet at the same time a hundred percent holy, just, and wrathful. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yahweh is both perfectly merciful and gracious and holy, just, and wrathful. The Bible finds perfect balance in this everywhere. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, sin. We see God's justice. They're guilty, naked. They're kicked out of the garden. We see God's mercy They're clothed by animal skin. Promised a coming seed to save mankind. The flood, we see God's justice. God floods the earth, destroys all of mankind. God's mercy saves Noah and his family on the ark, saving mankind. Abraham and Isaac, God's justice demands the death of Isaac because of the sins of the family. God's mercy provides a lamb in the thicket, saving Isaac and the promised seed. Exodus, God's justice destroying Egypt with ten devastating plagues. God's mercy saves Israel with the death of the Passover lamb. Yahweh is both merciful and gracious. Yahweh, Yahweh, God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. Yet, yet, just because he is merciful does not mean he overlooks sins. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquities of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is forgiving and merciful and he can't overlook sins. And I think Moses gets it. He responds in two ways. He pleads for and trusts in God's mercy and grace, acknowledging his sins. Look at verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquities and our sins. And take us for your inheritance. Two things. He acknowledges sin. For it's a stiff-necked people. We are sinners. And ask for forgiveness. Pardon our iniquity and our sins. He knows God is merciful at this point. God's revealed it to him. And God grants Moses' requests. God renews the covenant with Israel in chapter 34 through chapter 40. Exodus ends with Yahweh's glory descending on the tabernacle, showing that God forgave Israel's sins and would live in their midst. 
Listen. Exodus chapter 34, 6 through 7 is at the core of who God is. Yahweh is both merciful and gracious and holy, just, and wrathful at the same time, 100%. And really, Exodus chapter 34, 6 through 7 becomes the foundation of Israel's understanding of who God is. It's not Exodus chapter 3. I believe Exodus chapter 3 really just points us forward to Exodus chapter 34, 6, and 7, where God truly reveals to Moses that Yahweh is both 100% merciful and 100% just at the same time. And I believe Israel got it because these two verses are referred to in the Old Testament over and over and over and over and over and over again. Let me just give you some examples. Numbers 14, 18. Yahweh, the Lord, right? Yahweh, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquities and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father on the children, or fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Jeremiah 32, verse 18. You, this is God, right? God, show your steadfast love. Right? God, you, show your steadfast love to thousands but you will repay the guilty of the fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is Yahweh. A post. Joel 2.13. Return to the Lord, or Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Nahum, okay, 1, verse 3. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty, both 100% merciful and 100% just. Jonah 4, verse 2. I love the story of Jonah. Why did Jonah run? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Look what he says. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste and fleed to Tarshish. For I knew, he knows something about Yahweh, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew that. How? Because God revealed it to Israel. That's his name. Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my namesake. What's his name? Yahweh. For my namesake, I defer my anger. What's God's name? Yahweh, Yahweh, God, merciful, gracious, and slow to anger. Nehemiah 9, 17. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, Abounding in steadfast love, did not forsake them. 
even in the Psalms, Psalms 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalms 103, 8. Yahweh, the Lord, right, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Psalms 145, 8. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And what about Psalms 51? Think about this. King David sins horribly. Cries out to God for forgiveness after his sin with Bathsheba. And this is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Bolt out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sins. He's referring back to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. To Israel, when they heard the name of the Lord, Yahweh, they referred back to Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. Yet, just because he is merciful does not mean God will overlook sins. But he, or but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. And this is why God sent his son. To pay our penalty. To pay for those iniquities on the cross. The name of the Lord points us to Jesus. Yahweh's wrath poured out on Jesus, satisfied on the cross, so that Yahweh's mercy could be poured out on us. Yahweh is both 100% merciful and 100% just. And we are going to celebrate that this morning with the Lord's Supper, remembering who God is, celebrating the name of the Lord that he would send his son to die for our sins, that he can be both the just and the justifier as he forgives us our sins. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, again, I am humbled as I approach this text this morning, Lord. And this humility comes from the idea that you would reveal your personal name to us. And I believe encourage the Israelites, your people, to use it. God, be with us this morning as we celebrate what you have done for us in sending your son to die on the cross for our sins so that you can pour out mercy on us and yet still be just and not overlook sins make sure every single sin is paid for. Help us to understand, Lord, that every sin will be paid for. Either we will pay for it in eternity in wrath poured out on us or for those that have put their faith in your son. He has paid for it as he has endured that wrath for us. Be with us, Lord, as we celebrate you. In your son's name. Amen.